0: Well, I have a confession to make to you. Today, I am officially old. When, you're young, when your oldest child turns 22, you're old. And when our youngest one turns 22, we'll be really old, especially since I'll be 50 in a few months. Can you, uh, anyways, it's great to welcome you all here this morning. Uh, there were two little boys one time sitting at a table... And I sat down for breakfast, and Ma was making pancakes, and as only two little brothers can do, they began to argue who was going to get the first pancake when it was ready. So one's arguing, well, I got to the table first and sat down first, so I get the first pancake. And the other one's saying, well, you know, you got the first one last time, etc." So back and forth they were going, and so Ma finally kind of stepped in, and she turned around from the frying pan, and she said to the boy, she said, now, if Jesus was here, he would let the other one have the first pancake. So the two boys kind of looked at one another, and then one of the little brothers just said, I'll let you be Jesus. <laughs> that story really didn't have anything to do with my sermon. I just thought it was a great way to get a joke going here to start. get you laughing a little bit. But in some ways it does, because the hard part of being like Jesus is doing it in the real world, isn't it? But also one of our challenges is in the real world To see God communicating to us. You know, we sang a chorus just a few minutes ago. Our God is an awesome God who reigns from heaven above. With wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. The church has been confessing, because of God's self-revelation, literally through all, all of its journey, that God is sovereign. God reigns. He's in control. God orchestrates everything that happens in the world. In many cases, that gives us great comfort. When we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, it's nice to know God's in control, and it brings us comfort. some cases, it creates some distress. Some of probably the most difficult questions you've been asked, I know some of the most difficult questions that I've been asked, is, well, what's kind of up with God? You know, where's God when a tsunami happens, and hundreds of thousands of people lose their lives in just a moment? Where was God in the earthquake in Haiti? Or maybe on a more micro level, where's God when an infant just simply passes on through sudden infant death syndrome in its crib with a loving mother and father sitting downstairs, eager to raise a child? It creates some distress. But all of that acknowledges to us that God's in control. And so if God is sovereign over the universe, and he's sovereign over our world, and he's sovereign over our lives, it's not that big of a jump to say that God Orchestrates our circumstances to communicate with us. The hard part is hearing what God's communicating to us. I think I've put there in kind of your sermon outlines here a kind of a lengthy introduction, but let me read the, the kind of the more user friendly one that I put in italics. If God controls everything and He desires to shape us to be able to live in alignment with Him, then it only makes sense that God would use our real time circumstances to teach us. In some ways, life can be seen like a flight simulator. God is trying to prepare us for everything through the ways that we're learning and growing through life. But this is a massive subject for us, isn't it? I challenge you to think about a single moment in your life where you weren't in the midst of a circumstance. And sometimes when you're completely enveloped in something, no matter which way you you look, it's just there. It's really hard for us to begin to get our hands on it and begin to understand it and it's that same kind of challenge, let rest there for us, is how do we, in the midst of circumstance, begin to figure out how God communicates to us through circumstances? So as only preachers can do, I'm going to try to impose a little order on what can look really chaotic. And I want to try to kind of create a couple categories that God, in which God speaks to us about different issues through our circumstances. One category is that God uses our circumstances to teach us for us to understand things to be able to see things to comprehend things there it's educational so that we can know stuff there's another aspect in which god orchestrates our circumstances to guide us to kind of show us what we should do where we should go what should we be a part of that kind of that to do side of things that open door that god puts before us and we know we're supposed to step through it it kind of put those two kind of categories on there and and i want to try to deal with the former today I don't know what I'm going to do with the latter yet, but with the former is, how does God use our circumstances to teach us what we need to know, what we need to understand, what we need to know about him, what we need to know about ourselves, what we need to know about the world? How does God do those things for us? And, and because it's such a large subject, what I want to try to do is give you some illustrations that can, one, show you the methodology As well as, I think, provide you with some categorical questions that you should be asking about every circumstance that you find yourself in in life. And so I'm going to move us around today through several different figures in the scriptures that speak to us and how God used circumstances to communicate with his servants. And the first of those is the book of Job, the figure Job. And if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of Job For those of you using your own Bibles, you're going to find the book of Job right before the book of Psalms. Psalms is usually right in the middle of your Bibles. And just turn back a little bit to the left. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find our text today on page 424. And I'm going to read a couple of passages here out of Job's reaction to his experiences. But let me just kind of explain the first couple of chapters to you. Just let me kind of tell the story in my own words. Job was... This is in the patriarchal period, as far as we can tell, before the formation of any real nations, the nation of Israel, before any of that. Job was a righteous man, and he was also prosperous because he was righteous. The Scripture tells us that he had seven sons and three daughters. They also were prosperous. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes of oxen, 500 female oxen, donkeys, I mean, and a large number of servants. And he was the greatest man among all the people of the East, the Scripture tells us. Then we get a picture into heaven. And the accuser, Satan, comes before God. He tells him he's been out roaming the earth and developing all the accusations against people. And so God says to him, well, have you considered my servant Job? Because he's blameless. You have no accusations. And Satan's response is, well, come on, think about it. You're good for Job's bottom line. Job obeys. You bless him out of his mind. Why wouldn't he follow you? But you take all that stuff away, he's going to curse you. God said, okay, go ahead. Let's see. So Job has one of those days that nobody wants to have. In the course of one day, he loses everything. Raiders come in and they take his herds. His fields are destroyed by brimstone that falls out of heaven. His children are celebrating together in one of the homes and a big strong wind develops like a hurricane and it blows over the home and he loses all 10 children. Everything is gone except for him and his wife. And Job's reaction, as we see it in the 20th and 21st and 22nd verse it says of chapter 1, it says, Then Job stood up, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of the Lord. And throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Story doesn't end there. Satan's back again in front of God, and God says, well, see, look at Job. You incited me to let you do all this stuff that just ripped his life apart, and he still worships and loves me. Job says, come on. I mean, all that stuff's important, but he's still got his health, you know, and and he doesn't want to curse you because he's afraid of what would happen to his health. God said, well, all right, you can't kill him, but you can make him suffer. Job Satan inflicts on Job. The scripture says he was covered from head to foot in boils. And they were itchy and crusty and et cetera. And, he, and he, so bad that he, he grabbed a, just a broken piece of pottery and he would use it just to scrape his skin to get the stuff off. And he's sitting out on a pile of ashes as a symbol of mourning. And his wife comes around to him. says, do you still retain your integrity, it says in verse 9? Just curse God and die. God's already obviously given up on you. He's judging you. Just curse him as a symbol of the punishment and just die. Just go away. And Job's response is this. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. I want you to know my wife has never spoken foolishly. I just want you to know that. Do I get extra bonus points for that? Sorry. All right. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. She should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. In the following chapters, Job struggles to understand what has happened. But nowhere in that journey does he abandon his devotion to God. Neither does does he abandon his commitment to God. And you look at the circumstances of Job, especially with the vantage point that we have through the window of heaven, as we get to see these encounters between the accuser, and the father. And it really boils down to the question of why does Job love God? Does he love God because he's God, or does he love God for what God does for him? Job doesn't understand that that's the test. But his circumstances prove that Job loves God because he's God. You can think about a lot of circumstances in your own journey. Why do you love God? Is it simply because you acknowledge that he's the unique being in the universe there's none like him and because he is sovereign immortal omnipotent holy and righteous and all the way down the line just because no matter what's happening in your life he deserves your undivided and unrestricted devotion or is it because well god's makes my life better god's good for my bottom line listen th- this is a question that we struggle with in lots of circumstances you, like I, have encountered people who said, well, you know, you know I, 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 you know, I used to believe in God, I used to follow God, but this stuff happened into my life, and that's it, I just, I'm just done with Him now. And circumstances show to us and show to God why it is that we follow Him. We live in, a, in, in an era now in, in, in this part of the country, really around the world, in which there are many Roman Catholics who are struggling with whether they're going to continue to kind of follow and walk with God or they're just going to abandon all of it. Because some men who were a part of the church didn't make wise decisions. Why do you follow God? You can see this unfolding in Job's life. We can maybe see it unfolding in our own. But it's really healthy for us in almost every circumstance, especially every difficult circumstance in our life, to ask us ourselves the question, why is it that we follow God? Why is it that we love God? Is God there just to somehow make us happier? To somehow to make the bottom line of our lives a little bit better? Or do we follow God because he is worthy of our fellowship? Another story. Another set of circumstances. The book of Jonah. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text on page 784. If you're using one of your own Bibles, good luck finding Jonah. It's just a few pages buried in the minor prophets towards the back of the Old Testament. You're going to find them squeezed in between Obadiah and Micah. <laughs> Let me just tell you a little bit of the story and then I'll let me read chapter 4 for you. So we've got this one illustration of Job and this categorical question that we should ask of our circumstances. Why do we follow God? Now you've got Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. His job is to speak to others in the name of God. He likes that job for the most part, but God gives him an assignment. He's instructed to go and preach condemnation to the city of Nineveh. Which happens to be the capital of Assyria. Who are the arch enemies of the Israelites. The conflict. The hatred between the Israelites. And the and the Assyrians, Assyrians. Was as every bit as much as it is today. Between the nation of Israel. And the Palestinians. Hostile. And God calls upon Jonah. To go to Nineveh. This capital. And proclaim God's judgment. If they don't repent. Jonah's not dumb. He knows the nature of God. He knows that if if these people listen to him, that God's going to relent from the destruction, Jonah doesn't want that to happen. He wants them to be destroyed. So he seeks to thwart the purposes of God. So God's told him to go east, so he goes west. He goes down to the Mediterranean. He signs up for a cheap man's cruise. He gets aboard a commercial vessel that's headed out to Tarshish, and away they go. They get out far enough from land where there's no turning back and a storm comes. The crew somehow or another understood that this storm was, was a form of a judgment. It wasn't just kind of a natural, but God was doing this intentionally because of somebody who was on board. They're all offering and making their prayers and doing whatever they do to all the different gods they believe in. And they, they rouse Jonah out of his bunk and says, you've got to talk to your God. Maybe your God can make these waves stop because the ship is literally just coming apart and they're all going to drown. And Jonah gets up, and through a process called casting lots, it's revealed that Jonah is the culprit. And they say, what have you done? And what can we do to make the waves stop? And Jonah says, well, you've just got to throw me overboard. He says, I ain't jumping, but you can throw me overboard. And so they pick him up, and they throw him overboard. He says, and immediately the waves just went calm. Jonah probably struggled in the water for as long as he could, because, because the scripture tells us he eventually began to sink, and that God sent along. A huge fish that had swallowed him whole. And somehow or another, miraculously, in that stomach of the fish, there was enough air trapped or whatever that he was able to, to live for three days. I'm sure it wasn't the greatest of surroundings. I don't know what goes on in a fish's stomach. I hear my own stomach growl on occasion, so I can't imagine it was a, the accommodations were all that great. But Jonah managed to survive for three days until God had the fish vomit him up on the shore. So God, Jonah goes off to Nineveh, it's a massive city, and he begins to proclaim street to street the judgment of God, and it takes him three days to get the job done, it's so large. And the people respond to the message. All the way up to the king, who offers an edict that, that everybody should repent and they should, you know, uh, put on sackcloth and ashes and turn back from their evil ways and, and seek the God who, who, you know, the holy God. And then we pick up the picture in, picture in chapter 4 on 784 in your pew bibles it says but Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious why because God had relented of the judgment because of their repentance and he prayed to the Lord and he said please Lord isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country that's why I fled towards Tarsus in the first place I knew that you were a merciful and a compassionate God slow to become angry rich in faithful love and one who relents from sending disaster and now Lord just take my life from me you know for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah's basically saying, I am, I am so hacked off that you use me to give forgiveness to these people. Just, just get me off the planet. I don't want to be doing this anymore for you. That's really what he's saying. The Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah left the city and he sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant. And it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. You see the circumstances? The sun beat down on Jonah's head, so they he almost fainted. And he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, yes, he replied. It is right. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, "You cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in the night and it perished in the night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than hundred and twenty thousand people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left? In other words, who have no idea what they're doing spiritually? Should I should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than hundred and twenty thousand people cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals?" What's God saying to Jonah? He said, Jonah, just think about what you're saying. You're heartbroken over this weed that grew up and gave you a little shade because you were getting, your head was getting overly sunburned and you were just wilted in the sun. And now that it's gone and you had nothing to do with it, you're all upset. Think about it from my perspective. There's 120,000 people in that city that I made. There's a slew of animals in that city that I made. And you're angry enough to die over a weed, but you don't think I should be upset with wiping out 120,000 people who are precious to me. In the midst of Jonah's circumstances, God's trying to get a question through to him, for him to make an observation, for him to know something. And here it is. Our circumstances are constantly asking us, are we seeing life from our perspective or from God's? Do we just see everything how it affects us, or do we see it how it affects the kingdom and the glory and the reputation of God? And you can just keep struggling those questions all the way out. And you think about how you react to your circumstances and what you can learn in the midst of your circumstances. And that question comes up over and over and over again. Do I just see it the way that I like to see it? Or am I seeing it the way God sees it? Just a little bit of an application there. You know, and, and this is not to be critical towards anybody or anything, but you know, we, can, we can grieve over the loss of a family pet. And not even blink an eye when a whole generation dies because of famine in a foreign country. What do our circumstances say to us about where our hearts are? Let me tickle this kind of vein out just a little bit more. Many of you are familiar with the story of Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God to be the father of the nation of Israel, and he and Sarah were supposed to be the mother and father of the son through which that promise would go. God took years to fulfill that promise over several decades before Isaac was born. When Isaac was born, obviously Abraham, because he was an old man by then, 100 years old. Sarah was 90. He was just doted. He just loved this child. And so God, in Genesis chapter 2, put him to the test, created some circumstances that would reveal some things about Abraham. So he told Abraham to take Isaac, the precious promised son, and to take him off on a 3 days journey, take him up on the top of a mountain, and to offer him as a sacrifice to God. And Abraham prepares to do just that. Takes some servants with him, all the stuff they're going to need, all the supplies for the, for the for the offering, and off he and Isaac go. They get to within a day's journey of the mountaintop, and he leaves the servants behind. Isaac gets to carry the wood. Jonah carries the fire. I mean, Abraham carries the fire. Up they go up the mountain. He builds the altar, lays out the wood, binds up his son, puts him on top of the, off, of the thing, draws a knife, is ready to kill his son to to offer him up as a burnt offering, and God stays his hand. And Abraham had said to Isaac earlier in their journey, when Isaac inquired about where was the offering, God had, Abraham had said to him, the Lord will provide. And when God sees Abraham prepared to slay his son, he stays his hand and he says, Now I know that you fear God above all else. What God needed to learn, what Abraham needed to know about himself, was that he loved the giver of the gifts more than the gifts that he gave. That his commitment was obedience to God rather than the preservation of the gifts that God had given in Isaac. I wonder, our circumstances constantly communicate to me, I don't know about to you, Is constantly asking me the question, who, who am I following? Who am I prioritizing? Who am I more in love with? The gifts that God's given or the giver of the gifts, God himself? Let me give you some examples. Maybe some of these will rattle true with you. You know, it's a really beautiful Sunday. Should we really waste it with going to church? The gift or the giver? Or how about this one? You know, I really don't have the time to commit to that ministry because I've got to take my kids to music lessons and to tutoring and to dance and sports and right on down the lines, and I just don't have time for that. Or I can't afford to give to the Lord's work, all that I expect, all I think that I... I mean, because, because, you know, I, I got I to gotta pay that mortgage on the lake house. You know, and we, we're going on this big family vacation. And the kids are getting ready to go to... I can't afford... You, you get the drift. We prioritize the gifts over the giver. Our circumstances communicate this stuff to us all the time. If we're just listening. One last story. Because I think it really adds... To these categorical questions that we should ask ourselves. Why do we love God? Are we really seeing God? Are we really seeing life from God's perspective? And the last of those is from Luke chapter 15. If you're using your pew Bible, you're going to find our text on page 886. This is again a, a well-known story to many of you. It's the story of the prodigal son. Let me read a number of verses of this text for you and just make an observation about some questions that we can use to hear God speaking to us out of our circumstances. In verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, he says, he also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate I have come into me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he'd spent everything, a severe famine struck the country. See the circumstances? And he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. You've got to remember, Jews don't eat pig. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. You know, I'll get up, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up, and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He he ran, he he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slave, quick, bring out the robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet, all of them symbols of sonship, of belonging to the family. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The text goes on to talk about how the older brother reacted to all of these doings. The prodigal son has obviously been told as a Jesus was using it here as an example of the way that God is ready to respond. To repentant sinners who come back to him. He's ready to meet them with mercy and with grace and with forgiveness and to adopt them back into the family of God in completeness. But this story and the circumstances that Jesus draws up to make it come alive communicates a powerful question for us to ask ourselves about our own circumstances. And that is, at the core of the way that we do life, is it based upon the conviction that life is always better with the Father. His son wasn't convinced of that. Give me my stuff. I don't want to hang around here and serve you and then serve my brother afterwards. Just give me my stuff. I want to go. And out he goes, and and he's convinced that the world can satisfy, right? Then it all comes apart. And what lesson does he learn? That life is better with the Father. I, I, I think our circumstances, if we put this lens across it, are constantly trying to teach us. What God's trying to say to us in the midst of our circumstances is that life is always better with the Father. In our first service, a new friend of mine by the name of John Gallagher, he's been attending Hope now for about a year, was here. I had a chance to spend some time with John this past week on my day off on Friday. We were out golfing together. And he was very kind. I think I beat him. And uh, not that either, though the course tortured both of us, but we had a good time out there. And, you know, as we were talking during our round, John made this statement to me. You know, he said, if I had never gotten cancer, and he has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, he said, if I had never gotten cancer, I would have never read the Bible. And in my words, we want to say, and I never would have figured out that life is always better with the Father. Have you learned those lessons from your circumstances yet? Has God spoken to you about why you really love? Has God revealed to you why you really love God? What's the source of your devotion? Is it because of who he is or what you hope he might do for you? Are you seeing life? Through his perspective? Because this is how God sees your life. Every choice you make is a statement of whether or not you want to be with him or not. Your choice is about whether to, you know, attend church or read your Bible or to commit a sin that you see in some of that. All that is about whether you you're gonna grow closer to God and move farther away from God. That's the way God sees it all. It's not a question of, you know, just A and B. It's it's a question of are you gonna be with God or are you gonna be with His opposition? It's always relational. Do you see life from God's perspective? And are you living with a life-shaping conviction that life is always better with a father? When faith meets our circumstances, that's when the hope of God really comes to life. Let's pray together. God, part of the difficulty of our circumstances is that they go by so fast and they're never ending. God, we pray that you give us the ability to slow down what's going on around us, to step out, to be stopped, and to listen, and to hear, and to know how you, the sovereign God of the universe, is giving us those circumstantial communiques that can shape our lives. God, let our spirit be. Let our practice be. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. For this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing a concluding song of celebration to our awesome God. As we begin to sing, I would invite our ushers to come forward and to receive our offering, and you can place your connection cards in there.